Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio. one Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Breaking up is hard to do, but when it comes to your wireless carrier, you should have left a while ago. You're over the big three carriers. You deserve better. Xfinity Mobile. Now you can get unlimited with 5G included for just $30 a month on the nation's fastest, most reliable network. So break free from the big three and save with Xfinity Mobile. Take the savings challenge at XfinityMobile.com slash MySavings to see how much you can save when you get Xfinity Mobile and Internet together. Reduced speeds at 20 gigabytes per line. Most reliable based on Root Metrics U.S. report. Results vary, not an endorsement. At Lowe's, we're your go-to for great gardening values every day. That's why we've lowered our price on select bagged mulch. Now starting at just $2.88 a bag. Mulch helps prevent weeds and retains moisture. And when you put it down around trees, shrubs, and flower beds, you'll see how beautiful it makes your outdoor space. Just in time to welcome back family and friends. Shop online and pick up in-store. Lowe's, home to the best part of summer. Selection and product availability vary by location. While supplies last, U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii.
All right, it's film study once again. We're still looking at preseason football, looking back at week three. Going to take a look at the offense yesterday, or today, from two days ago. If you missed yesterday's podcast, you want to check that out as uh, we broke down the defense and had a great hour-plus conversation about the defense from this game. But today we're going to break down the offense. Ken McCusick, how you doing? Life's good, Josh. How about you? I can't complain. I mean, it's a Saturday in 90-degree Florida weather. It's okay. It's not bad. <laughs> so, all right, we got a guest tonight, like we do every night. I like this rotation of guests. It's working out really well, and it's real nice to hear different people's opinions and viewpoints. And uh, we've got Jonas Schaefer from the Baltimore Sun joining us, who's been spending a whole lot of time over at the castle. Jonas, how's it going? Uh, well, likewise, it, I woke up to about 60-degree weather, so uh, much better than the past. Yeah, I don't know. 60-degree weather sounds really nice, considering that it, my phone has said feels like triple-digit every day since I've been down here. <laughs> yeah, it's been one very, very, very nice year. All right, so uh, we're going to get into, I guess, Jonas, before we even dig into preseason, can you introduce yourself, kind of what you're doing over at the Sun? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, since last year, I've been the, the lead beat writer at the Baltimore Sun. Uh, filling in the very large footsteps of one Jeff Zrebeck, who left for something called The Athletic. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, just doing the normal beat stuff that uh, a reporter does for us. Uh, features, analyses, notes, uh, breaking news, uh, witty tweets, all the good stuff you could possibly want. So it's great, great stuff, Jonas. And I've appreciated your writing for a lot of reasons, but I just want to key the readers into who Jonas is a little bit. He's, he's a very analytic guy. So you're going to hear some stuff and analysis on this program uh, that, you know, give you a, a, an idea of these maybe a little bit different from other Sun writers that have been there over the years. And I'm not putting anybody down, but I'm just saying he's a little different in that respect. Uh, he's also an insider from the castle. And one of the things we really want to get from you is an update on the Ravens health from today's practice. Yeah, well, uh, good news and bad news. I guess the good news is that uh, obviously one big focus of the preseason has been the healthy of the offensive line. There was a little bit more concern than usual this past week with Ronnie Stanley being out uh, for most of those joint practices against the Eagles. Obviously, Marshall Yonda has continued to kind of be sidelined by just, you know, old guard stuff. Um, he also had a bit of a foot and ankle problem injury, but both of, those, both of those guys were back at practice today, didn't seem to be bothered at all by um, the, the lower body stuff that they've been dealing with. Jermaine Illuminor, however, is still out. So obviously that left guard problem that has been a brewing for the past month or so is still uh, not resolved, doesn't really seem all that close. Um, elsewhere, you know, the, the same kind of uh, injuries that have been uh, lingering. Randy Gracilius out, Gregson not, obviously out. Um, they would need that that depth uh, along the line for this next upcoming game against the Redskins. Jalen Ferguson out. Uh, Jeff Rebeck reported that he's in concussion protocol, so you hope that it's nothing too major there. Uh, obviously, Nick Grigsby uh, waived Paul Warlow. His contract terminated, but I know, I know we'll get into that. And then uh, Brandon Carr, Maurice Kennedy, Amon Marshall out. Safety, Earl Thomas also out. Um, you hope that... Uh, it's nothing too serious with those guys. Obviously, Amon Marshall has been out for a couple of weeks now, and he might be an IR candidate just from the writing on the wall. But I think more uh, positive than negative coming out of today's practice. All right. Uh, Amon Marshall, let's go back to him for a second. Is his a concussion as well, or is it another type of injury? Uh, we don't know. I think it's it's still undisclosed as to what it is. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but I think, gosh, he's been out probably coming up on two weeks now. And, uh, you know, I haven't really seen him on the sideline for, for games, which is uh, obviously worrisome. So, um, you know, it might be a Jaleel Scott situation uh, from, from last year where if they just want to, you know, take their chances with not having him on the roster or being able to practice this year, they might just put him on the IR. But again, that's just uh, conjecture for me. Right. That's, that's always a shame when I see that happening to a promising rookie player. And he's a, he's a highly thought of corner, very physical, yeah. and could really use those NFL practice reps you know, in this year one, even if he only plays a few snaps or is a, a, a full season inactive as Jordan Lasley was last year, he'd get the benefit of the practice at least. Right, exactly. Yeah. You mentioned Worlow really briefly. A very curious case there because, as I understand it, uh, he retired to be with his wife who's eight months pregnant, and it seemed like she was probably eight months and 29 or seven months and 29 days pregnant when he signed the contract a day ago. And probably knew that all this was something that really wasn't going to work out. Maybe, but I guess, maybe she just told him. Maybe he just found out. <laughs> yeah, that, that is the curious thing. I mean, you know, never having had a, a partner who is pro, uh, pregnant, I, I don't know exactly, you know, for most people when their partner starts a show, but I know it's no later than a couple or several months. So. You know, you do the math and you kind of get to figuring when exactly nine months is and you look at the NFL calendar and you think that with the help that these guys have, agents, managers, whatever, you know, they'd be able to to do that kind of calculus and figure out just whatever it is that they want to do. But, you know, if, if it is true, obviously you, you want every NFL player to put their family life over their over their NFL life. But it is still a kind of curious 24 hour in and then you're out. Yeah. All right. Um, uh, we. Got to witness a pretty bad football game. I don't want to beat the heck out of that dead horse any more than we have. Obviously, a very bad week around the league. But no Lamar Jackson, no Carson Wentz. I did think that this win over the Eagles was still pretty good. The Eagles' defensive yeah. line are both, uh, is very formidable. And the offensive line, they played mostly their starters with Brandon Williams sitting out for the Ravens on that defensive side. And Patrick Ricard, you know, starting effectively in his place. Yeah, and the, we were talking in the press box just how much maybe that is uh, a reward for Patrick Ricard, how much of a kind of stick it is for, for Willie Henry. Uh, obviously, Henry had gotten a lot of praise early in camp, uh, mainly because he was healthy, because he was light, he was looking good. But you know, you do wonder if this were week one of regular season, where both would be on that depth chart because I mean I know you talked about it at length on this on this podcast and and in your film study there there really hasn't been a more impressive breakthrough guy than Pat Ricard and Willie Henry's just kind of quietly done his job maybe gotten a couple you know hurries or pressures here and there but uh, if if they think that more reps equal more production for Ricard in the long haul then obviously you want to get him as many as many reps as you, as you possibly can out there. Another theory I had about that was Ricard got the start as a reward for eating a bunch of defensive snaps in this game. I don't honestly believe Ricard is going to play too much defensive line this year. Yeah. We'll see, but I don't really believe it. I think he there's too many kind of situations where he's not exactly the best guy. Like he's a big guy and he can he can be a little bit stout against the run, but he's not as big as either Pierce or Williams and he's never going to be the five tech interior rusher that you get from either Wormley or from uh Henry. Right. So, so, you know, it just doesn't seem like he's an obvious guy in any particular situation. But what was really valuable is he came in and he ate 24 
snaps or whatever it was in this game. And they otherwise would have had to get those from somebody else. And Brandon Williams wasn't available. So gave some rest to the starters. And, and he got some good pressures, too. I mean, I think he forced that that uh, lateral fumble, whatever you want to call it, that I think ended up going for, what, minus 10 yards or something? Minus, minus 10. Yards. That wasn't even a quarterback hit. And then he got another actual right. quarterback hit. So two big, pretty good quarterback poundings uh, uh, to his credit in that game. He's a big boy. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Okay, well, I do want to talk about one particular problem that really stood out to me in this game with the Ravens, and that's an offensive tackle, where it, we went into the season, you have Stanley, you have Orlando Brown coming off a, a good rookie year, and you think everything is going to be fine. The Ravens finally have their tackles figured out. Now it's just this darn interior offensive line they have to figure out. But as of the game on Thursday, the Ravens, as particularly after it, the Ravens had a problem with every single offensive tackle on the roster, whether it was injury or effectiveness. So let's just just to go through these. Orlando Brown was on the field. He played the entire first half uh, against uh, the Eagles. He wasn't particularly effective uh, as a pass blocker in particular. Yeah, I mean, I was looking over the first half, and I think did you did you give him uh, did you hold uh, it against him for that holding call because I thought that was just kind of a situation where obviously his hands were in the right spot but that looked to me looked like a situation where McSorley kind of ran the defensive end yes. into the holding call um, obviously like I said Orlando's his hands should be in the guy's uh, chest plate not around him but I think you know he did everything he needed to until McSorley started to escape and at that point because of where the ref was looking and where Brown's hands were there was no choice but to throw the flag. Um, but yeah, I mean like there was the, there was the sack near the end of the half for Sh- Sharif Miller. I'm not sure if Miller was the one who was credited for it, but the, the one that they eventually wiped out because of the, uh, the hands of the face against McSorley, that didn't look good. And, and then even on some, some running plays, like he missed a block uh, early on uh, when they were kind of backed up in their own territory. Uh, and that Matt Skura kind of had to abandon his block because he had to, chased down uh, the weak side guy. There was uh, a call in the second quarter where it looked like maybe McSorley had kind of told his line to, to block to the left because everyone kind of at the snap of the ball shifted left, but the DE uh, defensive end that was just right across from him dipped around him. Like Brown thought that maybe Hayden Hurst or justice Hill would get him. And it was just a clear shot to, uh, to trace McSorley. That might've also been an RPO, but again, uh, it's it was really tough to tell, and you want to give Orlando the the benefit of the doubt, but taken with the context of just of, of this game, it was definitely a little bit worrisome. And um, you know, I, I totally agree that there really isn't until you get Ronnie Stanley back a, a totally dependable uh, tackle out there. Right, and and uh, you know, I, in Brown's case, I think there are other environmental factors that are having a having a having a contribution to this. Is that when he's playing with Yanda. Yanda can make up for a lot of sins. In, in right. fact, if your footwork is bad, you can kind of be bad to the inside, and Yanda will often bail you out on that block, where that would normally be death to a tackle that really exposes inside. And, uh, you know, the uh, same thing on the other side. The unsettled left guard position has meant the left tackle has been left out on island, and it's been some not very good left tackles, particularly in this game, that were not up to the task. 
Uh, you know, they're not playing together as an offensive line, just in general. You know, you gain that cohesion. You mentioned the Skura change of line call. That's the kind of thing, if everybody's playing together, they understand what's going on. Or somebody like Yanda, who's in there, says, well, hold on, recall that kind of thing. Uh, anyway, you, you, you got a good chance to get it right otherwise. Uh, and, right. you know, when we come back down to it at the end, the Eagles' defensive front is very impressive. And they have, you know, two two deep defensive ends that are good that we're playing all the way to the end of this game. Yeah. I mean, uh, are we ready to start to talk about the Vinnie Curry situation? <laughs> yeah. First? Uh, boy. Uh, I mean, it was, it, it was not pretty early on. I think it was, wasn't it back to back? You had that again, the Ravens drive that started deep in their own territory. They lined up in that diamond formation. Justice Hill got the, the handoff to his left and Vinnie Curry just whooped him. Uh, you know, there, there might have been a big hole to the left. I think maybe uh, Boyle was leading the charge down there, and they might have had like a kind of five to ten yard gain. But Hill just had to completely change course, basically, because Curry was right there, and because Hurst hadn't done his job. And then on the next play, uh, McSorley, you know, drops back to pass, and Vinny Curry just puts James Hurst on skates. He basically walks him back to McSorley's foot, uh, you know, toenails essentially, and. Uh, it looked like it was a screen pass all the way, but I'm not sure if Trace wanted to get that out as soon as he did because it looked like by the time Justice Hill got it, there wasn't really the kind of blocks that uh, in front of him that, that he was expecting. And then just toward the end of the draft, uh, toward the end of the, the, the half, rather, um, another uh, pressure allowed versus Curry. And then uh, end of the half, uh, Josh Sweat, I also had him just walking him back against McSorley. So you can kind of see why he might be better suited against guys with shorter wingspans playing inside, but it, it definitely was not encouraging. Now, you're, you're impressive going over this block by block, and I'm reading my own score sheet. We just did it. Um, Hurst scored a .44 on this. Two and a half pressures allowed. One penetration that you mentioned on the big bubble that he forced on Hill's run that didn't go anywhere. Loss of one on that play. Uh, but I, I'm in agreement that basically on all, all the things you're telling me about, there are three missed blocks in the game he had as well. So it was a really unimpressive half of football. He only played 25 snaps and, uh, you know, 0.44 is an F any way you look at it, not close yeah. to any other grade. I just don't think I, I, the, the good that could come out of this game is that if Hurst is healthy, this ought to be a five alarm fire that he cannot go back to left tackle as part of any solution this year. Yeah. So, it also might be that, you know, we have to give him, I think somewhat of the benefit of the doubt, you know, maybe he didn't, he wasn't planning to play left tackle until the coaches told him Tuesday. And, you know, you have a full week during our normal game week to, to study guys and to kind of know how to anchor and to, to know what to expect against a guy like Benny Curry. But obviously you can only change so much about yourself physically and uh, I think those shortcomings were, were definitely exposed in a big way Thursday. Yeah. I mean, he's a swing guard tackle. I think it's part of the job description to be able to do both jobs in yeah. any particular game. And and he's a guy I don't expect to be starting. It could happen. He could be the full bark at, back at left guard come week one. It's, it's certainly not impossible. But I think the better choice is that he's a backup guard and backup right tackle. But this really gets us to, to some of the other problems on the roster. Uh, Illuminor, his injury is very significant because he's the swing man who can actually play left tackle and had done a good job of it. Yeah, yeah, he has. Uh, I mean, that's he's got the size to, to, to be out in the middle and then 
I think we've seen just with how well he's pulled that he's got the the feet to to be out there at left tackle. He's certainly got the size to to anchor against maybe the kind of guys that that James Hurst can't. Uh, but I mean, as I was telling you guys before uh, before we hopped on, uh, it, it is tough to tell exactly what's wrong with him because he left Monday's joint practice against Philadelphia. Um, early on, he was kind of doubled over in some pain. It was very, very hot out there. I think the Philly International Airport had a heat index over 100. Um, it was just brutally hot. Um, and, you know, he's obviously a guy who had some conditioning problems entering camp. He failed the conditioning test uh, heading into it. He had to wait a day or two to, to pass it. They've been trying to, to get him down to a certain weight. Um, you know, he, he's talked openly that he knew he should have done better. Um, but if you can't handle 30 or 40 minutes in the heat, uh, then, you know, summers are, you know, falls in Baltimore can be kind of unforgiving. I mean, that there are going to be some very hot Sundays out there. And when he got carted off the field about an hour into camp, it was tough to tell exactly what, what was wrong because, you know, from him being bent over, it looked like it might be heat exhaustion. Maybe it was an upper body injury, but again, you would think that he would be able to walk off and head to the, the training room. But, uh, it is just tough to tell what the problem is with him, but obviously the coaches are, are very frustrated and no one's really offering any compliments to him for, for what he's gone through because he still hasn't really achieved anything close to what the coaches think he's possible of. Okay. Now, what you're saying is interesting to me. There's two things. First of all, he rode off in the cart as opposed to riding off, lying down in the back of the cart. He's passenger seat, right? I think he was on the. He was kind of on the truck bed or whatever you want to call it. Okay, but like like reclining on the truck bed or sitting on the edge of the truck bed or what? It, it, okay. I think he, I think he was just sitting on the. I don't think he was reclining. Okay, all right. So that's that's better. So that at least tells me it might not be a knee. If the coaches are pissed off at him about this, that's the better kind of injury that he can recover from. It's not good to be in the doghouse, but it's better in terms of it might be a conditioning issue or it might be a, he doesn't want to work hard issue, which hopefully they can correct. But if it's some sort of injury involving his knee or a foot injury, God forbid, then that's very serious for an offensive lineman and is something he might he might not play this season if it's that. Right, right. I, I think especially with his weight, you, you will definitely want to hope that it is not a foot injury uh, because, you know, force equals mass times acceleration. There you go. There's a lot of mass on that body. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about Illuminor. Stanley obviously has been injured, returned to practice today. That's great news. But, you know, he's had an injury history, obviously. And that left tackle is a position where the Ravens are going to need a backup. If Illuminor is not the guy, then, you know, Gregory Sanat is maybe next down on the list of people that could play that position. I don't think it should be Hurst. If it can't be Illuminor, then I think they probably have to think about keeping Gregory Sanat on the roster. Now, Sanat played well in that first game. Had a holding call, but otherwise had a good game. And the thing that he's missed the last two games, and he would be normally he'd be losing a lot of ground for missing games like that. But the truth of the matter is, the Ravens are so desperate at left tackle. I don't really think he's losing that much ground. Yeah, I mean, the trouble is just he hasn't been all that great in training camp. Or training camp's obviously now over, and this injury has just made it very, very tough to to be able to tell exactly where he is in his development. And as you remember last year, there were problems also with his lower body. He got mm-hmm. in trouble, some some hot water with John Harbaugh for for tweeting out a, a photo of Ooh, his foot in a walking boot. Uh, and John Harbaugh kind of blew a casket about that. Um, so, you know, obviously he, he has 
the the kind of prototypical background that you would want in a developmental tackle. Obviously, he played basketball. Wagner, he looks good just kind of walking around without pads. He looks like a guy who could play anywhere along the line, um, just physique-wise. Uh, but he was having some trouble with some of these, uh, you know, f- kind of first slash second string edge rushers that the Ravens have, you know, the, the non-McPhee crowd, basically, as, as I would put it. Um, and obviously, that may be a testament to just how good uh, this kind of overlooked group of pass rushers uh, actually is. But obviously, he still has a lot to learn from an NFL, you know, intellectual standpoint, I guess is, is how I would put it, versus someone like James Hurst, who, even though he might not be as physically gifted, uh, you can c- depend on him to execute uh, the play call, you know, 95 out of 100 times. Right. Now you, another guy who's around is probably not expected to make the roster is Chris Ilias, but he was a guy last year who had played left tackle during the preseason, and he did not look bad in his playing time during the preseason last year, is my recollection. It looked as if he could be a guy who you'd put on the practice squad, and if in dire need, you'd bring him up. Yeah, I mean, he's a guy who, like, if you were kind of comparing it to a TV show, all we've all we've basically seen of him is the pilot. You know, it was just mm-hmm. I think one one or two one or two practices at training camp, and he's just been sidelined ever since. And poor guy, we you know we kind of joked among the the Ravens reporters that one of these days we're going to ask to exactly what Randon's injury is, but he's just so far down the depth chart that it just <laughs> never kind of occurs to us while we're up there asking John Harbaugh about more pressing matters. So, I mean, I feel bad for him if it is a serious injury. He's been out there on the sideline for all the games, so obviously it's not something that's kept him off his feet. Um, but, you know, he would be, I think, a, a, a huge, huge long shot at this point to make the 53-man roster, regardless of how banged up the, the Ravens' better tackles are. Right, I, I agree with that. They have options, obviously, to, to go to the waiver wire and other places. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, Applefield played the entire second half. In fact, he played that last drive of the first half, which was the Ravens' longest drive of the game. Uh, he looked pretty bad at, at left tackle, uh, particularly as a pass blocker. Prince, uh, on the other side, has been bad every time he's been in in, in the games. Uh, I, I really just don't have anything nice to say about him. He's, he's, he's faced some tough... Uh, left defensive ends and left outside linebackers over on that side, but uh, uh, still, he he really has not uh, gotten it done. And I don't think either of them is a guy you keep on the practice squad. I don't think either of them is, is the sort of guy that just didn't quite make it, and you might need him later, kind of thing. Makari, he's that kind of guy. Um, uh, maybe Cresilius was had he been healthy. Sanat certainly is if he doesn't make the team, but I just don't see either of those guys as being uh, an, an option for the practice squad. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of you get what you pay for. Both of those guys, undrafted free agents, mm-hmm. haven't really flashed. I think Prince looks a little bit better, uh, has looked a little bit better um, so far in training camp. Uh, but I, I agree, both just kind of unremarkable so far from from what we've seen in practice and in preseason. All right. So if the Ravens are going to fix this tackle situation, they have three main ways to do it. One is get the current players healthy, which Stanley returning to the field is a big part of that. And they've got to get some good news on, on the Illuminor and Sanat front before long. I mean, there's, we are 15 days from an opener in Miami, and you want to talk about heat and Illuminor, if if the issue is heat, I don't think that's the great place for him to start the season either. No. Uh, Sanat, maybe a, a, you know with his body type, a little more heat-resistant, whatever, but there's got to be somebody to back up tackle, even in that very first game, or... 
I don't I don't even know what they do. I don't, I'm not even sure if Hurst would back up a left tackle or they move Brown to the left side or what they might do. But Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I guess a lot of it depends, again, on this kind of issue of whether they keep eight or nine linemen because, mm-hmm. I, I mean, this would be just the ultimate emergency option. But Pat McCarry did play tackle for a Pac-12 program uh, for a couple of years there. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know how much the protections change for a guy going from – interior of the line to the uh, to a tackle spot for the Ravens um, just whether it's a whole new kind of uh, you know set of rules to learn basically but if need be and he was on the 53-man roster he is a guy who you could hypothetically put out there and maybe have a chance to hold your own right the the issue with Bakari is arm length and yeah. he doesn't have NFL arm length for a tackle, even though he got by with it at Cal, right? Cal is where he played. Mm-hmm. And I, I I like the idea that he could be your emergency emergency, but he's at the emergency level of having Patrick Ricard jump in at guard if you need him. I mean, it's 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 <laughs> that kind of theory. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So I, I hope I hope the Ravens. I'm, I don't want to wish injury on anyone, but I hope that they do reach a point whether. They're either up forty-five nothing or down forty-five nothing, and they say, "I'll screw it," or "Oh shoot, we have no other option," and they have to put in Ricard. I just—I know your head would explode, wouldn't it? It would be fun. <laughs> it would be fun. Uh, all right. So anyway, the other possibilities, and they're still open there, are trade or waiver claim. And th- there is a shortage of offensive line talent, of course, league-wide. A couple of years ago, we saw some ridiculous prices paid for tackles at the end of camp. It's as if, you know, there was a shortage and, uh, you know, gas prices are at $7 a gallon or whatever. It was like that um, with a sixth round draft pick for, for, you know, some really weak offensive line talent. Uh, You know, waiver claim is possible as well, of course. So there'd be a lot of teams in that. Ravens having made the playoffs last year would be low in the waiver order to Mm -hmm. make that claim. Uh, But they do have draft capital. So if they want to trade for someone, I think, you know, it's probably two positions, offensive tackle and, and slot corner are both places where it would make sense to pick somebody up. Yeah, I mean, this is where all that willing and dealing that we've talked about that's netted them so many picks for next year's draft could, could really come in handy, right? I mean, that that Corey Vedvik trade could be worth its weight of gold. I mean, it's obviously already kind of worth its weight considering that what he didn't go over two tonight, I think. For, uh, oh, did he? I saw he missed his first from about 43 yards. I didn't see Yes, the, yes he missed second. both. I think he went wow. Like, the second one was a 52 or 53 yarder. So it's tough to hold it against him. Um, but, you know, obviously that trade looks good, at least better by the, by the week right now. And uh, I don't know what the kind of going rate, what, what a fifth round pick or sixth or seventh would get you kind of at that roster deadline. But uh, with the, with the draft capital that they've amassed, they, they definitely have some options to work with. Well, I, I have some rules about that. You you can exchange players of a surplus always. You If you have a surplus player that you're going to cut, it's usually a seventh or a conditional seventh that's worth. If you want to go up a little bit in class and get somebody better, you have to find a team that's ambivalent to lose that player, much like the Ravens were with Vedvik, supposedly. Mm-hmm. But they might have kept them as a punter or whatever, yada, yada. But, but, the, but that they're ambivalent to lose him. And in that situation, you might be able to get something better. And the, the guy the Ravens still have that they might, be, might have been ambivalent to lose would be Jimmy Smith. That if, when, if they still had Tavon healthy, right. that they might have been willing to trade him for a fourth-round pick, say. So that's if you look at what, they're, you know, what you can get, I think that's kind of the level you'd be looking to trade, a fourth or a fifth. It was a fourth-round pick for Josh Wilson several years ago. 
He'd be mm-hmm. perfect for this team right now. He's exactly what the Ravens need to, to, to plug their current problems. So if there's a team out there that has a big surplus of corners, maybe you find the maybe you find the trade partner. Right. I know the Ravens, uh, and at least this was the policy uh, with Ozzie News in the past, that they've been among the last teams to kind of shed their their guys on the roster fringes. Well, you know, other teams might be a little bit more expeditious in terms of mm-hmm. you know cutting players uh, in in the week or the days or the hours leading up to that deadline. Whereas with the Ravens, you know, even going up to that you know second to last practice, there's still a good amount of uh, guys, uh, way way more than the 53 that you need out there on the practice field um, compared to other teams that you know have done their work earlier and maybe that makes the Ravens job easier makes the maybe makes their job harder who knows we'll see are, so there's a practice on cut down day this year uh oh shouldn't be I right i don't i don't know it's a saturday the deadline's 4 p.m. um i think in the past at least last year it wasn't but i could be mistaken yeah so the coach is needed in the office to basically say goodbye to these guys one at a time right so it would i'd be surprised at that but i assume you'll be in the building and we'll be looking forward to your tweets why yeah, they, get... I think they always have a, a day of press conference, or it might be the day after. We'll see. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, all right. So, you know, if we look at the rest of the offensive line, I guess we've beaten this tackle thing to death. If we look at the rest of the offensive line, I think the order of entry into the game in the preseason is always interested. And there's one particular that interested me this week because – Hurst played basically most of the first half. Applefield then came in for the last drive, plus the rest of the game. Nothing really surprising there. Bozeman and Powers played the entire game at Bozeman at left guard and then center, and Powers at right guard, then left guard. But Skura played the first five drives, same as Hurst, before coming out, which to me was surprising. He's a starter. He doesn't really need to play that much. The Ravens had been pimping Makari as a you know potential option on the interior line and gave him the full evaluation treatment in the previous game. He didn't play great, but he, he wasn't awful either. And it seemed like this would be a, another opportunity to get him more snaps in this game. And having him not enter until the last drive of the first half is fairly late to see what he can do. Yeah, I mean, there's so many ways that you can look at that. Uh, you can look at it from the... John Harbaugh is just a competitive, uber-competitive coach. Um, you know, I think against Green Bay, Mark Andrews was out close toward, uh, was still playing toward the end of the first half, and he's a guy who you absolutely want to protect. Mm-hmm. I mean, God forbid him, you know, playing one play longer than he absolutely has to, considering all the good work that he's done in training camp and in practice. Um and that just might be because John Harbaugh really likes having those starters out there and building cohesion. You can also look at it from a more cynical perspective and say, hey, the Ravens kind of sort of like what they have in Macari. They, they want to give him enough reps where he's comfortable out there, but not so much, not so many reps that there's enough film on him that other snooping around, you know, snooping around teams can really scoop him up if they indeed uh, try to, you know, stash him away on the practice squad. Um, it, it might be, you know, punishment for maybe McCarr not having as good a week as he had in the past. Uh, there are just so many different avenues, probably a confluence of those factors that that goes into the decision making process for for that offensive line rotation. Okay, lots of possibilities. I think the second one is the most realistic: is that it's an attempt to hide him yeah. for potentially a week on the practice squad. And one of the things we talked about this a little bit uh, with Sarah, but 
not everybody understands that if if you don't start on the 53 man roster, if you if you instead go to IR before the final 53 is set, then you are not eligible to be returned from IR. You have right. season ending IR if you last so you have to be on that roster to start the season. Well, Makari is a guy you can also put somebody on the practice squad and then return them, of course. But Makari is one of those guys, and maybe McSorley is one as well, who you could put on the practice squad, hope to have them survive a week there, and then bring them back because you're hoping somebody else who you're planning to put on IR, you can keep on there for one week and then move them to IR. Yeah, and and I was trying to kind of game this out in my head uh, about a week or so ago when Makari seemed to really be making his move. But there was also the possibility that this was just all for show or trying to – you know, send a warning to Luminor that he better get his stuff in order. You know, I don't know how much one or two good preseason games is really going to, whether that's really going to be enough to get Macari uh, on some other team's radar. I think if you're a team looking for help, you want a guy who can perform, which Macari probably can, but you also want a guy who's healthy. And I think that's where the possible red flag comes in. I mean, we saw with James Hurst and that back injury, just how, problematic injuries of that type can be for linemen and Makari's a guy who had to miss all of uh, mandatory minicamp with a back injury. He got healthy in time for the start of training camp. So credit to him. But I think he also had a, an upper body injury toward the end of his Cal career that knocked him out in late November. I think it was a broken arm or something with a shoulder. So that's two relatively serious injuries in the past year, uh, the past calendar year. And, you know, if you're a GM, do you really want to be spending a 53-man roster spot on a guy like that who could probably hack it as a backup guard, but maybe if you know he has one bad uh, you know, day of practice, one unlucky day of practice, I should say, is, is back to the IR and you're just kind of back at square one. There's just a whole lot of factors to consider when you're talking about a guy like Makari. Yeah, it's a great point. You know, The injury history is obviously something that will weigh against him on other teams' boards, but... There's certain teams, and the Ravens are one of them, looking at the Ravens for offensive line players, looking at the Ravens for defensive line players. I think also look coming out of this year, if the Ravens were to cut a safety by surprise, like say Chuck Clark were to get cut, uh, you know, that, that he would be jumped on by other teams. Oh, but Absolutely. Yeah. But anyway, we, uh, we, we digress. I mean, the guy who was most claimed last year was Carl Davis, who had six waiver claims made on him across the NFL. Just the, the, the end of the Ravens' defensive line – group is uh is certainly a popular uh, uh set yeah and i mean I, along those lines obviously i know we're talking offense tonight but you do wonder just how many teams would, would possibly consider that they could work a miracle with someone like gerald willis if indeed mm-hmm. he is healthy enough to to play in thursday's game but again he was he was uh, out again today so we'll see but you know, he fell out of the draft for a reason and we've kind of only seen him flash uh, in bits in bits and pieces so far. So um, who knows if, if the Ravens would also be able to hold on, hold on to a guy like him. Okay. So in, in particular in Willis's case, do you get the impression that any of that is a dog in Willis? Cause I, I've only heard good things, including the Harbaugh's tweet to Willis about he's doing the right thing. Just keep doing it every day kind of thing. Yeah. I was, uh, I was kind of joking with Aaron Kassin. It's the, the uh, Penn live uh, reporter who, who wrote that, that, that might have been the highlight of Wilson's training camp because it seems like since the, since that story went out, he really hasn't had a good day. Uh, I think he was good enough in training camp to, to merit that kind of praise. Uh, and, you know, it's it's really tough to kind of 
guess and maybe backdate your sort of injury uh, examinations. But if it was a kind of lingering injury thing that just got worse and worse and worse, and it started right after that article got published, then maybe that could explain him not really having uh, a whole lot of effectiveness and certainly not getting a lot of snaps. Um, so I don't think he had any real bad injury troubles at Miami. It was more so the off the field stuff that was a red flag with him, uh, you know, switching from Florida to Miami and then him uh, punching out Marty Warnwick's son. Who can forget that? Uh, but, you know, he just really hasn't been remarkable at all. So uh, who knows? I mean, obviously they, they need to get him out there. And he's going to, if he's healthy enough to play Thursday, they'll probably try to just see whether he's worth anything because they're not going to run any starters out there. Right. I mean, he's a player, honestly, It's a, he's a great game four starter because I think yeah. the Ravens honestly would be somewhat ambivalent to whether he went on IR or not. Um, and, and it, you know, there's other players that, that are on the fringe of the roster more that they really don't want to pay on IR. But Willis, it's not, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if they had to pay him for an IR year. It wouldn't be great if they didn't want to, but it wouldn't be the worst thing. Right. And, and I think we, we talked about this offline, just the fact that, you know, he's a guy who is built a little bit more like your five technique pass rusher. Someone mm-hmm. like Dale Mack is the potential next in line after Michael Pierce, after Brandon Williams. He's, whereas Gerald Willis is six four, three hundred, and, you know, had like 15 tackles for loss or something last year in Miami. He's a, a guy who can get in there and maybe not as great against the run, but if the Ravens continue to develop defensive linemen like they have, could definitely be a contributor sometime down the line. But, you know, who knows? But we just haven't seen enough to, to make any any kind of definitive conclusion. All right. So I, we wanted to get your insider opinion on this, but we need to jump back to the offense here. I, I'm just going to I'm going to shortcut the rest of the discussion about sure. this offensive line on Bozeman and Powers, because I'll have an article produced later in the light uh, later in the week out on filmstudyravens.com. They'll have the scoring for Bozeman Powers uh, what we had for Hurst with some particulars in Macari. So look for that later in the week. I want to talk about some individual performances here. And I don't think we can start without talking about the unbelievable performance by Trace McSorley. Let's do it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was something to behold, right? I, I think after those first two games, you know, you kind of came into the preseason thinking that this was a guy who 90% chance of, of making that 53-man roster just because of RG3's injury situation, because the Ravens don't like giving up on draft picks, because you know, he's just a, a class individual. Uh, but then he struggles a little bit, you know, has the interception in both games, both times targeting Miles Boykin. Uh, and then, you know, coming out against a, a fairly representative Eagles defense uh, just balls out. I mean, you know, though doing all the smart things, throwing to the back shoulder of bigger receivers, uh, you know, evading pressure, like he's a fifth-year pro. Mm-hmm. Uh, just just really, really impressive. And, I mean, I don't know how many Ravens quarterbacks have kind of had that first-half stat line in, in preseason history. Like, he hasn't been well, but I think it was like 16 for 14 for 203 yards, something like that, and the, and the two touchdowns. I mean, it was just awesome, awesome to behold, wasn't it? Yeah, big big first half. Um, you know, there's so many things I liked, and I do want to mention a few of these. And then I, I want to get to your comparison that we talked about in the production thing, maybe after we do this, if you don't mind. Yeah. Uh, so it, I, for me, the big thing was decision-making. It wasn't just the results. And the results were fantastic. 
but it was where he threw the football. It was a lot of that accuracy outside the numbers that we've seen from him and we really haven't seen from Lamar Jackson. In terms of the 44-yard pass to Boykin, the 28-yard touchdown to Floyd was dropped right in the bucket. The Even the, the incomplete to, uh, who was it, number 12, Scott, in the end zone was just right. off, just off, out of reach on his fingertips and perfectly thrown in the sense that it's safe from the receiver. I thought the pass to Boykin on the right sideline that was knee high really should have been caught. Don't know if the, if it, you know most services will classify it as a drop, but to me it should have been caught. Um, it is was a ball that was safely thrown by position. So I mean I just I really loved how he placed the ball in this game. He only had one ball and it wasn't a high risk. It was in the third quarter where he didn't play nearly as well on the left sideline where he had a ball knocked down that might have been an interception. But it was the only even close to interceptable ball that he really threw all night. Yeah, and we can talk about uh, when we get to Miles Boykin, maybe about some of the wide receivers kind of sort of letting him down. But we also have to give them a bit of a pass because someone like Boykin is a rookie and still still learning the game, still learning how to, to run his routes. But yeah, I mean... You know, just talking about how impressive he's been, uh, somewhat inflated by this most recent game. But hey, I think it's it, it can't be discounted at all because it is the Eagles and because he was going against starters for for as long as he was out there. But you know, you just take a big picture view. Twenty nineteen stat line for Trace: three hundred sixty two passing yards, fifty seven point one completion percentage, three touchdowns, two interceptions. 76.3 passer rating and you think okay that's you know that's solid but again you have to consider that these are rookies and it is very very tough to succeed even when you're going against second string defenses this early in in uh you know a rookie's career so i just look back at some of the other recent uh ravens rookie quarterbacks they've trotted out there and obviously not a whole lot of big names yet uh Tarah taylor in 2011 joe mm-hmm. flacco in 2008 uh, Kyle Bowler, 2003, and then you have random guys like Keith Wenning, 2014, mm-hmm. Josh Harris, 2004, some some guy named Wes Pate in 2002. Oh, a long time ago. There you go. He Seventh round draft pick. Yep. Finished with a remarkable two out of three passing for 25 yards. No touchdowns, also no interceptions for a, a bountiful 92.4 rating, which is <laughs> somewhat inflated. But yeah, uh, you know, just just looking at the at the passer rating, uh, you know, with traces three three hundred sixty two yards, he's on pace to to pass what uh, Tarod Taylor finished with. Uh, Tarod had a sixty six point five rating, four hundred eight passing yards, a touchdown, and three interceptions. Uh, three year, three years earlier, during Joe Flacco's first year, he had only a fifty two point two percent completion rate, two hundred eighty four yards, one touchdown, zero picks, sixty eight point three rating. Um, Chris Redman back in 2000, a mm-hmm. uh, bunch of yards, 364 yards passing, but a little less accurate. He was 37 for 62, had a touchdown interception, 74.9 rings, which leaves the undisputed champion of Ravens rookie preseason quarterbacks, Mr. Kyle Bowler. 2003, <laughs> 356 passing yards, a solid but not great 58.9% uh, completion rate, and then four touchdowns, uh, one interception. I think he was helped by one big game toward the end of that preseason, but mm-hmm. he finished with a, a pretty good looking 86.4 rating. So, you know, if, if trace uh, can keep it up and you think he probably would, I know the Redskins have a pretty deep defense, but again, they are also going to be starting uh, their backups, um, you know, for the, for the Ravens, you wonder if that means that uh, they will also not put out someone like miles Boykin who trace 
has had kind of a hot and cold relationship with. But you know, if if he's been doing what he uh, what if he does more what he did of on Thursday than he did in the previous two weeks, uh, you're looking at a guy who's really really done an impressive job. And uh, you know, it's kind of obvious accepted wisdom at this point. But it's really going to be tough to to you know have him uh, snuck onto that practice squad because some team is going to want him as their second or third. Uh, second or third string quarterback. I, I hear you on that. I'm not entirely convinced that that's true of, of trace is that, that he would be snapped up by someone. A lot of, a lot of teams have their system in place and they that's do true. already have their second guy in place. And the, the, the two preseason opponents of the Ravens, maybe two of the best chances. I mean, Philadelphia just picked up Josh McClown, Josh McC- McC- McClown is what I want to say. <laughs> but you know, it's, he's, he's, you know, almost 40 years old, uh, whatever he is, he's 17 years in the league. I mean, that is a move of utter and complete desperation. I mean, it's right. not a developmental move. That's for that's for certain. If you have your starting quarterback go down, I guess if you're a team like the Eagles, you might really try and get by with Josh McCown and see if you can make the playoffs. If you if you want to have any kind of development out of the position, so maybe you have a less good team like the Jacksonville Jaguars. Say he'd make a lot of sense. You know, instead of Minshew, instead of some of their other cho- you know choices for a backup quarterback, so I'm it's 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 a it's an interesting choice to me in terms of of whether or not he'd be taken by somebody. But I do think he's a guy you might just roll the dice with for a week and try and decide. You know, if is there somebody else I really need for eight weeks this year? You know, right. You come well, back at week nine, week eight, whatever the rule are is for our DTR. Uh, one team. Uh, I'm not sure if you saw this again, but one team that is in need of a quarterback. Uh, the Indianapolis Colts, did, did you, have you, are you seeing this? I did Andrew not. Luck, Andrew Luck has informed the Colts for Adam Schefter that he is retiring from the NFL. Oh my God, that's huge. That just happened the last few minutes here? Uh, yeah, 31 minutes ago for sure. Wow, okay. Uh, I'm paying too much attention to the show here. You you clearly have that reporter's uh, No, no, I just got a black message from my editor. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's good to hear because the Colts are one of the teams that were, would have been a threat. And the last thing I want to see is the Ursay family to win anything, as most Baltimoreans would agree. <laughs> there you uh, go. Right. So I, I did want to talk about two other things I saw from McSorley in this game because we're talking about a lot of the roster things and whatnot, which which are significant. But But I wanted to get back to this is that – one of the things that was really made clear in this game is that Trace does not really have the speed to run the read option attack. Yeah, um, and, and he had. If the opponent is disciplined at all, you know, you often still will get Jackson on the edge with a one-on-one situation to beat a man for a, for a medium gain, say one between five and ten yards. And it, it, he was twice put in that position and twice taken down behind the line of scrimmage uh, on those plays. And I. I and they're separated by they're in the article if you want to go out on the website to, to, to look at that. Um, the other thing I really like, though, is he's had now in three games two incredibly impressive end-of-half drives. One was a minute and 11. They drove 69 yards against the Eagles on 10 plays. First of all, he's a rookie. A minute and 11, and I think the, the actual thing lasted 64 seconds was the length of the drive. He got off 10 plays. That's yeah. remarkable. <laughs> you know, that's that's poised to get to the line of scrimmage, to be able to do things like that, to get the ball out of bounds, to have your team on the same page. Uh, and then the four-play four drive in 20 seconds against Jacksonville that should have been a touchdown but was negated by Sanat's holding call uh, and got called back. That, that was a touchdown to Boykin, I think, in the end zone. And then they, they kicked the field goal anyway. I I've, I mean, you have to go back to Stony Place in 1999 to find a guy who had two end-of-half drives that impressive. 
Yeah, I mean, that was just the the reputation on, that was the book on, on Trace kind of coming out of Penn State, right? He's just always been a winner and always been a gamer. He was a, a guy who was recruited out of uh, Briarwoods High School in North, North Virginia as kind of a safety and then continued to win as a quarterback, won the job at a big-time program like Penn State. And, uh, you know, just really a guy it's easy to, to count out, but when you do, as soon as you do it, he'll, he'll make you look bad. I mean, I think he's a guy who probably commands the pocket pretty well just from his natural leadership ability. But obviously you have to have the arm strength and the, the know-how to kind of make those sideline throws that he's doing that, um, like you said, like that, like you said uh, kind of amount to these 10 play drives in under a minute or so. So it's definitely really impressive. Yeah. All right. Well, some of the other players in this game, so we got some of the the uh, comparison, the other rookie quarterbacks in there. Let's have a, a quick talk about Miles Boykin, just because he seems to be at the heart of all of the Ravens plans, whether it's this year we're talking about or this preseason specifically. Uh, he's a frequent target. Yeah. I, well, it was interesting. I forget. I think this was this kind of epitomized the rough edges on Miles Boykin. Obviously, you, you had the 45-yard or whatever it was catch and run in yesterday's game. But I think it was in the preseason game against the Packers. Uh, he had that uh, in-breaking route, I think it was a slant, where he kind of rounded it out very, very awkwardly. And it ended up being a near interception that, that traced through. Um, I think it might have been off, and off of Boykin's hands. And, mm-hmm. then, and then maybe off of a Packer, Packers player's hands or whatever. But mm-hmm. just just watching the replay, uh, if I'm re- remembering it correctly, it just kind of stood out because it looked like Miles decided he was going to run at one angle and then like a step or a step and a half later, he kind of changed the direction. And obviously, when you're a receiver, you want to make that cut decisive because you want to tell the quarterback right. with, your, with your body language as soon as possible where exactly you're going. And so I, even though it was... It looked at first glance like it was a bad throw by Trace. I kind of wanted to give more of the blame to Boykin, and I think they're both fortunate that that ball wasn't picked off. But, um, you know, just looking at some of the advanced metric stuff on Boykin coming out of Notre Dame, I think it was something like 45% of his total receiving yardage was either on go routes or mm-hmm. out routes, which are obviously probably the, the, the less. Yeah, those are the simplest, yeah. least sophisticated routes that you can run. Um, and yeah, obviously, the Notre Dame coaches want to put him in a position to succeed, which he absolutely did, having as great of a season as he did um, toward the end of the year there. But, you know, he's not a guy who maybe has the know-how to, to run the in the kind of routes that someone like Willie Sneed would. Obviously, Booking is an outside receiver, Sneed's an inside receiver, so that kind of changes their, their route trees. But he's a guy who, you know, is obviously despite all these big flashy plays he's making is still going to have to know how to, uh, you know, create space for himself if he can only run uh, a certain number of routes. Well, yes, that's the problem I have not had with him. I mean, particularly on the 17 plus 27 down the left sideline, he did a great job of creating space within that triangle of defenders who was around him. And he had the advantage, uh, you know, so Baldinger talked about this too, that Brown was running, running the, the slot route on that side and drew off two defenders. So he was able to get his guy turned, that edge defender who had to use the boundary and then cover Boykin, got him turned around, and then he made his turn, caught the ball, and was able to actually then evade that defender as well for the big game after the catch. I've been happy with the space he's created. 
What I think he's he's got to do is he not only has to become a less of a dropper, which has yeah. obviously been a problem, but he needs to become a bad ball catcher. So you know, become what Chris Moore is. Be able to go get the ball wherever it's thrown. It, you know, throw your body around to do it. Take chances to do it. But he's if he could do that, then he's the perfect complement to Lamar Jackson, who probably is going to be challenged at least for the foreseeable future in terms of his accuracy to the body on the throw. He'll be able to throw receivers open, and Boykin can get to a ball under those circumstances. So can a lot of receivers, a lot of the receivers the Ravens have. But but I think that when he's th- um, thrown a ball otherwise, when he's open already in space, he's going to need to be able to catch those bad balls. And that includes that ball at the knees on the right sideline. It was just a ball that was yeah. half the thought. And it's got to be a, a bigger catch radius than that that he really affords a quarterback like Jackson. So I, I actually like the space he's created on this. I was pleasantly surprised that he's done this. You may bring up a great point about the one slant route that, that nearly got intercepted, but I've been otherwise very impressed with the with the amount of space he's created. Yeah, and you, you wonder just how much of it is him maybe – I mean, it, it's dumb to speculate on something that's like this, but just him – going back and forth between having to learn how to catch a Lamar ball versus a trace ball. I don't know how much of a material difference there is in terms of, you know, anticipating their windup or anticipating where they'll kind of lead you as a receiver when you, when you're out there. But um, obviously, you know, he's been in training camp uh, or he's been with the Ravens for less than a full month of work. Now, if you're not including the, those spring workouts, which you really shouldn't, because remember he was out for um, a good bit of the offseason practices with, uh, whatever with whatever injury he had i forget exactly what it was um but yeah i mean he's definitely been extremely extremely promising and uh you know he's not going to be probably a 800 yard guy because that is just i think very very unrealistic for pretty much any rookie receiver but if they can get 500 yards 600 yards out of him i think that would be a a heck of a first season for him yeah I, i do too and i think he's he's a player who ought to already be trying to figure out what should he be doing with his offseason this year. There's a lot of players at this age not having a contract year in the ne- coming up the very next year that won't think to invest in themselves during the offseason. But boy, if you can do it before the year three, year four uh, crossover, meaning you don't don't wait till after year three to invest in your own career to become a better receiver. And it's receiving skills that he needs. It's how to make cuts, how to run routes better, hand placement, how to how to close on the ball, how to keep his eyes on the ball, all of those things that would make him a better receiver. He can learn, and, and he's got all the physical tools known to man. I mean, he's just got everything. Yeah, and I think I, I don't think he had a tremendous uh, catch rate at Notre Dame, but I sorry, let me phrase that. I think. He didn't have a uh, – he had a pretty good catch rate. Uh, I think his drop rate was just a little bit lower in terms of the percentiles. Um, so that that may be uh, somewhat of a nagging issue. But, again, it's just compensated by that higher than otherwise, uh, you know, just catch rate because that I think is just more of a testament to his wingspan, his body, um, his speed, his ability to go up and, and get possible jump balls. So I think whatever shortcomings there may be, with his hands, which I'm sure he'll work on. He's a very diligent, smart guy. Uh, his just natural athleticism will probably compensate for that. All right. All right, great. Um, Marquise Brown's debut. We, we need a hit on that, obviously. 
Uh, I was excited from scheme. I was excited for the two bad balls he went out to get, one to the outside, which he kind of pulled in with one hand and then secured. The other one he went up high for, you know, to the height that a normal six-foot human might get it. Uh, and uh, and uh, made a nice catch on the left sideline. Didn't do anything after the catch, but I'm not concerned about that yet. Obviously, the route implications on that left sideline is what he did for Boykin is very exciting in terms of how he might draw off defenders. And then the last thing was that I, I love the fact they ran the jet sweep, even though he ran only three times in his entire college career for zero yards. I love the fact that they did that because the defensive coordinators around the league will be looking at that when they play the Ravens and have to figure out how to stop it. And I've got to think edge defenders are going to tend to be frozen an extra quarter step because of it. Yeah, and just kind of thinking about how the Ravens will use him, I think Michael Crawford, uh, you know, Abu Kari on Twitter was talking about the the Ravens diamond formation and uh, their how they kind of use it on those two early plays with the the Justice Hill blown up run, but then the the quick pass out to was it was it Floyd the the kind of one where they just pull, pulled back and threw it to the guy out on the right. Do you remember who that was, Ken? Uh, I'm, I'm tr- trying to think of the play you're talking about, even. Um, the diamond formation where the the cornerback kind of crept in, thinking that it was going to be a run, and there was maybe a play play action uh, action, but uh, McSorley just threw it out to the right, and it was a pretty simple five ten yard reception. Okay. All but right. anyway, uh, just, you know, that is a formation that I think if you think about from a kind of micro perspective with Marquise Brown and the Ravens personnel that they have, you know, just just looking online for the necessary components to build a diamond formation, this footballstudyhall.com on mm-hmm. SB Nation, you need to have a good running back, which the Ravens certainly have one of maybe two with, with Gus and Mark Ingram, lead blockers, they certainly have that with Nick Boyle, Hayden Hurst should also be uh, a pretty good blocker. And then you also need a vertical threat on the outside who can abuse a one-on-one matchup, uh, and as well as a quarterback who can hit him downfield. And you could obviously say that's you know someone like Miles Boykin could be that guy because he has great physical tools. But I think you also want a guy who just the mere threat of him on the field gets the kind of cushion that Marquise Brown was getting on every single play out there on Thursday. I mean, it, it seemed like only when the Ravens got to the goal line did the Eagles actually bothered to have a guy more than, you know, closer than five yards against Marquise because they had so much respect for him. And it was actually surprising that they didn't try to jam him. I'm not sure if it was a kind of gentleman's agreement between Harbaugh and the Eagles coaching staff, like, Hey, this guy's, you know, still kind of uh, coming out of the bubble wrap. Let's, let's, let's treat him right. But obviously they wouldn't have tried to tap him as seriously as if that was the case. But I mean, if, if, if it's a guy who can take the top off the defense with, a go route, which he looked just absolutely explosive, just kind of coming out of cuts um, uh, on Thursday. But he's also a guy who, if Lamar wants to just abort, you know, a, an RPO and throw a simple out route to, or, you know, just a simple throw to, to Marquise out of the boundary and get mm-hmm. like five, six yards, just like, you know, finding that's kind of finding free money basically because it's going to be a 95% throw. And if Marquise Brown breaks it, then you have a huge amount of trouble on your hands. So yeah. I, I think, you know, just all the kind of wrinkles that a guy like that gives the Ravens offensively is really, really exciting to think about. Yeah, and they've, they've got to find a way, certainly, to loosen up the box in general. And, and a player like Brown, also a player like Boykin as well, are two guys that will really help do that. Um, the, you know, the, there's one other thing I really like from Marquise Brown in this game, and that was he he's not dissimilar 
to John Brown in some ways. You got both fast, short yeah. receivers. Brown is obviously okay. Hollywood is obviously more shifty than John, but uh, what I liked was he continued to run the route on that two-point conversion after the play was done, quote-unquote, and McSorley had extended it. And he found space in the back of the end zone for that completion. It was called back by holding, but it was still a very nice play for Brown to extend that play. And I am salivating for that with Lamar Jackson, who is one of the great play extenders in this league. You know, if we want to get a Pat Mahomes-like result out of Jackson, a lot of his value that he has to um, uh, layer on is going to be on those extended plays. And I think he's now going to have some of the weapons with Hill on the field and maybe Brown on the field at the same time to really find some receivers on extended plays. Yeah, and uh, this is, let me preface this by saying this is not a Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson comparison, but Mm -hmm. it it was Tyreek Hill, a guy who, Mm -hmm. if it's not Marquise Brown, might be the fastest guy in the NFL who caught that huge, huge uh, fourth down conversion. Uh, when Mahomes extended it, you know, just just barely escaping. I think Matthew Judon uh, in that in that game last December. So, you know, I think Marquise Brown. He's a guy that Marlon Humphrey said even when he was rehabbing like two or three weeks ago was hitting twenty twenty one miles per hour on these, uh, uh, you know, the, the technology that these that these guys mm-hmm. are wearing, um, which is obviously very very exciting. And just I, I you know I wish there was uh, all there was all twenty two. Uh, game footage for this game because uh, you know I wasn't watching the game as much as some of my colleagues because I was having to write the gamer uh, pretty quickly in that in that first half. But from what they were telling me, they were saying, "Oh yeah, Marquise was open on this one. Marquise was open on that one," and you know Lamar just wasn't seeing him or wasn't getting to him in his progression. So if if you take their words for for you know just as truth, then I think that's a good sign that he was able to get open pretty pretty easily. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's a it's a good point. And yeah, you don't get that on NFL Game Pass. I do want to encourage people. And this is the time of year. If you're a Ravens season ticket holder, please get your Game Pass subscription. Even if you're not sure if you want it, you have an email there that'll give you a free Game Pass subscription as a PSL holder, and you'll have an additional option in terms of reading my work because I give you those quarter and time references to go back and look at the plays that I'm citing. So I'd love for more people to take advantage of that if they if they can. Um, to, let's go on a little bit because we kind of need to get through the remainder of these players. Uh, Hayden Hurst, the only thing I had to say about this is that he's now got two catches on six yards for nine yards this preseason. Yeah. I cannot sugarcoat that in any way in terms of what's happened. And he it's, it, the, the clock is really running on him. If the clock is running out, quote unquote, on Bowser and Williams, well, Hurst is older than both of those guys. And the Ravens 26 as of today, right? Yeah, 26 (laughs) today. So the Ravens have him for four years here if they want him for all four of those years. But he's going to have to show us something in these next couple of years to be sure to be here for five. Yeah, I mean, I I was thinking about this when I I saw your outline. Uh, You know, just last year, obviously, was a disappointment. And I think the, the hope is that the Hearst that we see this year will be just completely unrecognizable from the Hearst that we saw mm-hmm. last year. And I think we should, I should preface this by saying that Hearst has been very, very impressive in, pre- in training camp and in practice. And there have been days when he's been better than Mark Andrews, who just looks like, you know, potential NFL conqueror this year. But you look at last year, he had a hundred, yards, not great, but along the lines of just the poor catch rate, he was targeted 23 times and he only caught 13. And, not good know, for a tight end. And it wasn't like 
Lamar Jackson had problems targeting tight ends because Mark Andrews was uber efficient whenever got it when whenever he was thrown to. Even Max Williams, I think, caught all but one pass thrown his way last year, mm-hmm. I, I believe. So, um, you know, it, it may just be. Uh, I think in this case, it, it's probably just bad. You know, case of uh, small sample sizes for this preseason for Hayden Hurst, considering what we've seen in practice. But you know, it may be that he just becomes more of a red zone weapon than a kind of middle of the field weapon, a guy who can just, you know, shrug off linebackers, safeties, whatever. And maybe he, you know, finishes the year with like 40 catches, but 10 of them are touchdowns who knows. Um, but I, I agree that his lack of a big time play through these three weeks is, uh, it, it definitely makes you raise your eyebrow a little bit. But, um, I think if you saw what we've been seeing, uh, at practice and at training camp, I think you should hold off on you know raising the alarm bar, alarm bells for now. I, I I do expect him to be a big part of the Ravens' offense this year. I just need to start seeing some indication of it. He, Brown didn't have that great a game in terms of his total yards of this game, but you can see all sorts of indications about what's special about Hollywood Brown. What I want to know is when's Hurst going to use his body effectively to make a catch? When is Hurst right. going to going to get some separation to find a hole in zone coverage the way tight ends are are want to do? You know, when is Hurst going to otherwise uh, be able to start making some contested catches uh, and, and earn the quarterback's trust maybe to do so? I mean, he had a, he had a, a one play at this game where he was overthrown in the end zone. Now, there was pressure on McSorley on the play, but it's the kind of play where, I, you know, I'd be I'd have been tempted to just give Hurst the chance to to box out the fender and make the catch. And well, one question I have for you, Ken. I know you're focusing mainly on the blocking efficiency of the mm-hmm. actual alignment, but has Hurst done anything negatively or positively in your opinion there? Uh, I, as a as a tight end, I don't score the tight end separately. Okay. So and and Hurst is not normally the first in line tight end, right? So if, if Boyle is on the field, he would normally be the guy. So it, it's he hasn't had the same sorts of opportunities. In Hurst's case, honestly, I think the better that we can hope for, the more reasonable hope is not that he'd be a great inline tight end. He'll be he'll be effective enough, but that he'll he'll be a good downfield run blocking tight end because the Ravens do so much of that. Yeah, I think you know you look at the two positions besides quarterback, obviously, that are going to be affected the most by the Ravens kind of hiding Lamar versus fully unleashing him when the regular season, when the regular season comes. I think it's running back and I think it's going to be tight end because there's so much interplay there with the play action and the RPO and the stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, growing up watching RG3 on the on the Washington Redskins, it was just money in the bank every time. It was a play action and then you just dump it to, you know, whatever tight end was kind of coming across getting behind the linebackers who had to respect that that run threat. And if you have a capable tight end uh, who's a capable blocker at tight end rather. And if Hayden Hurst is that guy, then that's a little bit more respect earned um, from maybe someone like Mark Andrews, who's obviously a, a better receiver, but maybe a little bit less respected as a, as a potential blocker. So, you know, if you want to be that all around tight end, uh, I think Hayden Hurst could be that guy. And maybe that fits better on some drives for the Ravens than than Mark Andrews. But again, you, that's also what Nick Boyle is, at, is is there for. So it's really tough to tell how how that'll work out. But I think just with the threat of play action, with the threat of Lamar holding a linebacker as a spy, I think the tight ends are really going to be a lot more effective in the regular season than what we've seen in the preseason so far. Yeah. 
I, I, it's a good point. And, you know, obviously being paired with uh, with Lamar is a different situation. Let's move on a little bit. Michael Floyd had his first three catches of the preseason, 54 yards. Uh, looked good, I thought, in general, and making those three out of four grabs. I, I kind of want to go a little bit quicker here, but what, what do you have to say about Michael? Yeah, I was happy for him. I mean, I, I think he'd only been targeted just once during the first two games, and that mm-hmm. was uh, a defensive pass interference call that he drew. Um, it was just kind of one of those weird cognitive dissonance things where uh, he'd been playing better in training camp, especially in those joint practices against the Eagles. So you wondered whether whether it would fully translate, and it finally did. And I'm happy for him. I mean, he's a guy who's been through a lot, obviously. Some of his foibles are of his own making, but mm-hmm. I, think he got, I think he got married in the offseason. He seems uh, very happy if you just uh, judge him by his social media presence. So I'm looking forward to hopefully talking to him uh, this week and just getting a sense for, for where he is uh, mentally. That, that sounds good. I mean, I, I liked his sideline awareness in this game, uh, both in terms of the pass interference call he drew earlier, which had, had some of that, but more on this touchdown catch in terms of making the throw being able to toe tap, also stay in bounds for the extra three yards because that's a big, that's a high leverage three yards to get in the end zone at that point. I didn't like the mistiming of his leap on the two point conversion. It appeared to me he probably should have had that ball. He just jumped too early and was on the way down already when it sailed over his head. Yeah, the, the, was that the one where there was a kind of good amount of hand fighting with the de- with the uh, defensive back there? Uh, left side of the end zone. I think the one you're talking about might be Jaleel Scott. Okay. Yeah. And I'm talking about on the right. left side of the end zone with Floyd. He was he was fairly well open by by you know a step or so, and he just he mistimed his leap and and came down. I I thought uh, you know was already on the way down when the ball flew over his head. Yeah, I mean Floyd also went up and failed to get uh, a pass from Lamar Jackson during an otherwise really really good practice from him a couple of weeks ago. So you know maybe just a guy who's not as capable of being that mm-hmm. kind of high flyer that he was in the past um, when he was a first-round pick, um, which obviously limits his effectiveness and what he could do potentially in this offense right. as an outside receiver, um, but still you know, has the know-how to, to get open, obviously. Right. So uh, the way I'm looking at the wide receiver battle right now is just talk, take a moment to talk about this. There are four guys who I think are set with Moore, Brown, Boykin, and Sneed. Yep. And then I think you've got three guys fighting for either one or two spots, depending on how the Ravens want to do it. Um, three or four guys, you could say. I, Wesley, to me, is on the outside right now because I think that Scott has separated himself from him. I agree. So, so I would I would say Scott's ahead of him on the list now. And then you have Floyd, and you have Roberts, who's now coming back from injury, right. who I don't think is a sure thing to make the roster at this point. No, I think he's of of those guys. I think he definitely has the best odds. But I think Thursday will definitely be big just to see how how he's holding up physically and whether he can produce against second and third string defensive backs. All right. All right. Well, outstanding. And let's see, what else do we have to go through before you go through this? Let's, uh, let's talk team MVPs. I think we talked about enough of the individual players here. So we usually, I, I like to go three to one on the MVPs in this game. You can play along or not. If you like, uh, forgot what we decided already, whether you're going to do this or not. I will, I will just, I will, I will say my piece and then clear the, clear the lane for you. I would just say that my, Special teams MVP is none other than Carly Lloyd for kicking a 55-yard field goal. (laughs) 
and uh, continuing just what has been a brilliant summer for the U.S. women's national team. Yeah, I, they are so much fun to watch. They, the women and the men were on the same day once this summer. And I, the men's game is that was unwatchable. The yeah. Unwatchable. And the women's game was so exciting. They're, I mean, they're exciting individually. They have the actual character difference. One of the things about the, about the women's hockey team that I noticed is the, the women look very similar. A lot of them all have that very tall Scandinavian look about them. The, the women's soccer team, very different looking girls. I mean, you got to identify them on the field more easily. It's just, it's more fun to watch the game. And they're, they're, they're very much individuals and, and uh, exciting to watch. Yeah, you don't see a lot of 5-2 players like Crystal Dunn in the, in the men's game. No, no. no. And, and uh, the other, the other uh, uh, okay, we, we, Carly Lloyd taking the extra steps is something that I've heard a complaint. It seems kind of mean-spirited to this. I mean, we know she's not going to kick in the NFL, but still, it seems a little silly to talk about. I know, I know. Her to a standard three-by-two kicker you know kind of and she was kicking on the narrow goalpost people let's give her some credit did not notice that that's impressive yeah all right so anyway i'll go i'll go through my offensive mvp since we're running kind of over here the nice thing about not having sponsors is we don't really care about that so we'll take it as long as we want and people can use two commutes to listen if they want marquise brown my number three mvp uh more for all the scheme he portends for uh, uh, what he did in this game, than what for what he did in this game in terms of yardage, obviously, but uh, very exciting player and love what he brings to the team. Yeah, I mean, I think if, if only Marquise Brown were healthy for the Week Two game, and then we could have might maybe seen him kind of take that lateral pass that Joe Horn Jr. took mm-hmm. uh, against the Packers. I mean, maybe the it, it, it is amazing just kind of what the Ravens are deciding to show and not show because. Uh, you know, some of it could be just construed as braggadocious, like, yeah, look at all the all, all these tools that we have in our playbook that we are going to show. But obviously, uh, you know, you talk to guys and they say that there's so much more that they haven't even shown. So who knows? Uh, I, I tend to agree with them, considering just the, the all the exotic stuff that Greg Roman has done in the past. And yeah, I mean, it, the, the nature of the Ravens offense, because it's so run heavy and it'll it'll change this year a little bit but i still believe it'll be run heavy they'll try and win play count by a lot they'll try and manage defensive snaps and and have a very low defensive snap count in total to help them win games because that's the philosophy they really need to layer on more and more new stuff every week as they go through the season so i completely understand the desire to hold back on the playbook right yeah and they they've talked about how one of the goals of building this playbook was just making it digestible and comprehensible to all the players and obviously millennials learn a different way than guys coming in into the league <laughs> 20 years ago so that that is going to be something that's going to be interesting it seems like i mean lamar jackson is the most important player in terms of understanding the offense and he says that in terms of his pre-snap reads and his pre-snap audibles and everything he's just it's night and day compared to you know what he was having to do last year which is uh, you know a very encouraging sign if you're a ravens fan all right. My, my number two on the on the game MVP is Michael Floyd. Nice toe tap down the left sideline for that 28-yard touchdown. Too bad on the two-point conversion. Other catches, uh, you know, got him up to 54 yards with 26 others. Uh, you know, a lot to like there, and he's reinserted himself into that discussion for that last wide receiver spot, second to last spot. Yeah, I mean, 
turning 30 years old in November, so the clock is ticking. But uh, we'll see if he uh, just how well he does Thursday. I think that's going to be a make or break game for him, just like a lot of like a lot of players. Yeah, this is a good spot for Floyd to be in as a wide receiver at age 30 because he could be a cut for a lot of teams. But the Ravens are a a contender, and b they already have a lot of their youth taken care of in Brown and Boykin, so they don't need additional youth projects. So a player like Scott, while he's an exciting possibility, the Ravens don't have as many obvious snaps to develop him over the future, where a guy like Floyd, who could play immediately and help them right now, might be of more value in the Ravens system and in the Ravens' current organizational history than for a lot of other teams in the NFL. Yeah, although it must be said, I'm not sure how much of this portends for the week one snap counts on special teams, but Jaleel Scott has been getting a lot of run on special teams. Uh, for, for an offensive guy, I think he had maybe the most or the second most special team snaps among the guys on offense. Uh, obviously getting a lot of work at Gunner. Seems like if and when Justin Bethel, Bethel makes the team, he has one of those Gunner spots uh, you know, wrapped up, but I don't know who they have uh, in mind for the other one, but if Jaleel Scott makes the team and what they've seen in preseason is enough, then you know, he could be a guy who could be active on, on game day uh, because it seems like he's done some good work out there. Yeah, great point here. So DeLance Turner of the offense players led in special team snaps with 11, and, and Jaleel Scott was second with nine. Nobody else had more than six. That was Chris Moore, uh, who we certainly think of as a special teams ace. Right. But anyway, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think that that's a great indicator for whether or not they're going to make the week one roster is, is how much special teams player they're getting. Yeah, and I guess with you mentioned it probably would be Chris Moore. He seems like the, the obvious candidate outside of Bethel. All right. Uh, let's see. My number one, pretty obviously, Trace McSorley in this game. We've talked about a lot of this already. We don't need to go over it again. Just very impressed with that poise. Very impressed with the sideline throws. Doing it in Pennsylvania. Penn State guy. It's got to be happy. All right. Josh, what do you have for us in the mailbag? This yeah, week? we got a few things in the mailbag tonight. Um, teased some of them yesterday because we're going to focus on the offensive ones today. Uh, you can... Steer the show by using the hashtag Film Study Mailbag on Twitter or commenting over at filmstudyravens.com. And we're going to start there tonight with some questions that came in on the website. First one up is from Dirk, who says, Mike Preston noticed that the Ravens need to work with Orlando Brown Jr. on his stance, that he's tipping plays, even an easy read in practice. What's your guys' take on this? Ken, you want to take that? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'll start, but I'm not sure I have that much to say. I, I often... Times I have a problem with the whole tipping thing, and I know they, yeah. the Chargers claim some things that they saw from Ronnie Stanley. I then looked at it; it's not obvious the exact tendency, but you know, someone has pointed out on Purple Flock in particular, a guy we're hoping to have on this show in a couple of weeks, that there was a tendency for him when pulling right to not go all the way down into a three-point stance. When he pulled left, he did go into a three-point stance. That's just not that many plays for the Chargers to pick up on what's going. So I, I have some real questions about that. Now, it could be Brown is getting lazy, and if so, they ought to be looking at that on film and, and, and say, thanks for pointing that out. We'll try and get that corrected. But I don't think I don't think it's um, anything physically that, that should hold Brown back. I think he just needs to think about what he's doing at worst. Yeah, and I, I mean, obviously, I think on, on some plays, if it's a third and ten, <laughs> you really don't are concerned too much if you're tipping it, uh, tipping you know that it's a pass play because what else is it going to be? So, um, and I think if, if there's anything that's uh, the obvious, to, uh, then I think the Ravens probably know what it is, know what the deal is, and 
just you know counting on Orlando to to you know kick it into order uh, come week one because if he doesn't then they really have a real problem. All right, I I think also Raven fans are a little sensitive about the about the whole topic of of the line giving up the play. Um, all right, yeah, next. I mean, he he, he the, the the last play of the Raven season was basically him, you know, blowing a block and allowing a sack. So I think that sensitivity is is very well earned. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, do you think the Ravens will cut or trade Kenneth Dixon? Everyone seems to be down on him, but I think he's too valuable to move on from. Uh, I, I think at this point with him missing Thursday's game and just his constant state of is he healthy is he not healthy it's going to be a really tough sell to for, for, for a team I mean I've, maybe, maybe the Jets are interested because they are interested in pretty much every Ravens player who, you know, they don't want. Uh, but gosh I mean I think a lot of Ravens fans and deservedly so are, are kind of fixating on, on that quote from uh, the Ravens running backs coach saying that Dixon is the most talented rusher on the on the, on the field um and obviously he had a great you know yards per carry last year but he's not a guy who's going to give you anything on special teams he's, he's never been a guy who, who can mm-hmm. give you that and he's i don't think he hasn't really shown that much as a receiver after that you know that rookie year or whenever it was that he kind of broke out so i think at this point a cut is, is more likely if, if you're trading him it's for peanuts basically Right. I mean, I, I'll, I'll say this as a receiver, he's not getting as many opportunities because he's not a good pass blocker. So yeah. if you don't do those two things well together, there's not a lot of reason for you to be in on third down. So that that role, I think, will go more likely to Ingram and possibly some to Hill this year. Hill, I don't know if you if you caught it in this game on the 44 yard throw to Boykin. He made a Hall of Fame cut block to maintain ample time and space yeah. upended the uh, the linebacker on the play. So very impressive. Uh Anyway, uh, uh, oh, Dixon, uh, I think you do. You can trade him for a conditional seven. It's possible, but I just don't think there's a lot of teams eager to trade you a conditional seven, knowing that he's going to be on the market. They'll take their chances because if it's not Dixon, it'll be somebody else, and they don't think there's that much differentiation. It could be Delance Turner is somebody they want just as badly. The Ravens are probably going to cut him, and you know he's shown a little bit as a receiver and as a runner, and, and he could be the guy that, that some other team wants. Yeah, and to, to follow up on that on that Hill note, not only did he have that great takeout block, but uh, on that uh, Aunt Mark Andrews catch and run, kind of sort of near the goal line, he mm-hmm. just watching the replay uh, this afternoon, he, he stepped up and really took on a blitz extremely well. He gave a little bit of ground, but for a guy who's about 200 pounds, it was pretty impressive how you know he would, he recognized the blitz, stepped in there, and did a pretty good job of holding his ground. Yeah, at his hit weight, he really needs to attack the body. So I saw him taking that block standing up, and I wasn't really happy about it. But that's okay. We're, we're on the same page on that. I also yeah. like that Justice Hill on the right side, when McSorley had the four-yard run, actually obstructed one of the players in the end zone. I think it was Hawkins, um, and, and, and helped McSorley get in the end zone. Because McSorley obviously was down to the last inch or so there. And uh, and to, to have that extra moment of, of, uh, of obstruction was good. We can gush over Hill. All day because he just does something exciting, even when he's not doing much in the way of yardage. Very often. Yeah, that's been moved with something else. All right. Uh, one more question from the mailbag. We're going to go with Carolyn's question, who is referring to Coach Billick referred to the odd uh, failed play with four on each side as the Daffy Duck play. 
Can you elaborate on this play? I'd be interested in the history and last time it was used and what it was meant to accomplish. Okay. I know a little bit about that, and I believe the Ravens may have used it three times in game action, but I didn't go back to find the exact years. So, Carolyn, I'm going to promise you I will tweet when they used that used that formation previously. But I remember it coming up on one occasion that was perhaps as much as a decade ago with players on the outside of the 3-3-3 at the line, quarterback and running back as well. And I, I couldn't tell from my spot in the press box, but – I think Jeff Srebeck sitting next to me said that Harbaugh was pretty pissed after that play because if you remember, it was only mm-hmm. might have gone for no yards or just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that just from reading those signs, because obviously it couldn't have been anything wrong with the officiating because the play w- was held up. And uh, I imagine that the Eagles had just 11 players on the field like they were supposed to, that maybe he was mad at McSorley and it was a, a read uh, that, that he missed on that because the, it looked like it ended up being like three against four in the middle of that defense. Mm-hmm. And maybe the read should have been to throw it out wide and you know take the chances with um, those guys, the, the linemen and the tight ends and the wide receivers who were out to whatever side that you that you favor, um, taking chances with them. But uh, it, it looked to me like McSorley probably didn't read the play right or, or maybe just thought that he, you know, I don't, I don't know. Uh, it, it, it was it was a weird play, but I, I'm in all in favor of those kind of bizarre formations. Yeah, I, I love it. It really forces you, I think, not to substitute on that play because you don't want to give the defense a chance to substitute or have an excuse why the play can be held up and they can get aligned properly. So I don't know if they did or not on that play. It should have been, I believe it was on a second down play. Without a substitution, that would have been the, uh, uh, the way to go there. Now, this isn't the same play the Patriots used that upset no. Harbaugh like last year, right? No. It's a different play? No, completely different. Okay. This is, this is, this, this is a, a formation the Ravens actually came up with actually long before that playoff game in 2014. The, the playoff game in 2014, the objection to it is that when you declare yourself eligible, you are a change in personnel. And Harbaugh's claim said it, is that you should then be able to substitute – on defense to counter that personnel switch. Yes. Right. Okay. All right. Well, that's going to do it for the mailbag. Um, people keep asking on Twitter how to help out film study. And the big thing is to spread the word, share the website, share the podcast, and write a review in your podcast app. And it's been a while since we've promoted that. And I've noticed that some have came in. So I thought we'd take the next couple of episodes and we'd highlight one each week. So uh, just last week, there was a new comment among the best sports podcasts. This is an insightful, independent-minded podcast that transcends just its amazing value to Ravens fans. I listen to regularly about 22 sports podcasts across different sports and leagues, and to me, this is the peak of what is available anywhere. Independent, meticulous analysis is rare in sports world uh, where where herd mentality and groupthink rule. But not with Ken. He could put an expensive paywall in front of his content, and a lot of people would pay for it. But he treats his writing and podcast with the care one would give to a daughter or son. He never mails it in and never fails to deliver insights. Listen to this for a year, and you'll find yourself having more insights. Thanks, Ken. You are the pinnacle of what other podcasters seek to do. 
That's unbelievable. Maureen took a lot of time to write that. She's not that right. good a writer. And, and to, to hear her do that, no. Yeah, we really to... appreciate these kind of comments, folks. And, uh, you know, hopefully this will help people find the podcast easier. Is that the end result? Yeah, it helps the, it helps with the rankings in the podcast app. And come on, if you read that review, you're going to check out the podcast. That, I hope you will. That's a huge praise. So, um, all right. So, Jonas, uh, you can plug the Baltimore Sun where all your writing is, as well as your Twitter. Is there anything specific that you'd like to share or, uh, and plug with our listeners? Uh, no, just you know, keep uh, keep your you know eyes tuned to BaltimoreSun.com uh, for coverage. Read the paper if you're if you're a subscriber. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Jonas underscore Schaefer J O N A S underscore Schaefer S H A F F E R No C and Schaefer. That is a very important point, and uh, I will I will plug also. Uh, this is for uh, the previous uh, mailbagger. Uh, the Emory and Henry formation is apparently what the uh, the formation is called. Uh, it dates to the 1950s, where Emory and Henry College's team used it. Uh, so if you, if you want a little bit of a nighttime reading or whenever you're uh, bored of work, uh, just Google that. You can uh, look at all the weird various formations. I found this on Wikipedia. So thanks, Wikipedia. Very cool. I don't know how you looked it up so quickly, but that's that's terrific, Jonas. That's fantastic stuff. Now, we've given you a little bit of introduction to Jonas, and he's new to Baltimore. He's just the the, the lead beat writer this year for the Ravens. He's got only 1,500 followers on Twitter. You've just heard this guy talk all he knows about football, all the inside information he can give you. If you're not following him, get on it, guys. Uh, you know, we'll be sure to, sure to give him a plug on Twitter here. But, uh, you know, get in the conversation with him. He's very approachable. Uh, he, he came to our analytics forum when we, when we did that because he's just a, a good football fan, wants to hear about stuff. I mean, I, I, you're going to like this guy and you want to interact with him if you can. Dumbest guy in the room, but I was happy to be there. <laughs> Ken, no way. <laughs> Ken, I, I like how you're throwing that out there like 1,500s low. Like he's got some catch-up for you to do. To I, I didn't, I'm Andrew. sorry. I didn't mean that at all. all. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I, I am well aware of my standing in the social media packing order, but hey, I am not going to let that define me. I, I, I'm, I'm looking up at Jeff Zrebeck, and who's got five times as many followers or more than that than I do, and, uh, and thinking that way. But that's where you ought to be. I have more hair than both you guys, so that's what I look at myself with. <laughs> Go for that now. Right, Your that, hair is gone. And that's why we all held back when you bashed the millennials, not us. <laughs> so, all right, Ken, what's up on filmstudyravens.com? What is coming? Okay, now we got two cool things still to come this week. First of all, we'll have this podcast, but that'll be out once you know that. The defense uh, grades are out there currently. So that's a plus three to minus three for all the players on the fringe of the roster, not just the ones we talk about tonight that we took an hour and what, 30 minutes to talk about here so far tonight. But you're beyond that. We're going to have offensive line scoring later this week for four players. Uh, Hurst, which I've already given you a little look into tonight, Bozeman, Macari, and, and uh, Powers will have. And I don't like to do every, all the uh, linemen. It just doesn't really make sense for the preseason. But we'll do those, and I'll put out a, a small piece on that. And then at the end of this week, the plan is I'm going to do a presentation I did at the analytics forum, which only a few people saw online on a either a live stream or more likely a recorded podcast with video. It's going to allow you to look at what's this defense and identifying the Ravens defense either from your seat or 
doing so, uh, you know, for for analysis purposes to try and record that information quickly. So it's an interesting for uh, kind of presentation. You've seen it before, Jonas, in terms of of uh, what was there. You were one of the few. Um, and and we, we talk a little bit about when the Ravens use these formations, how often they use these formations and what they look like. Yeah, it's all very cool, very uh, unique stuff that you really will not get anywhere else. Maybe, all right. Maybe, maybe do it on a free night so some of the Ravens can tune in to also learn their playbook a little better. <laughs> so. All right, guys. Well, uh, it was great conversation like always, and uh, we'll all catch up and continue the conversation offline. Introducing the Lowe's List for Innovation. While our aisles are filled with innovative products, we've selected our favorites just for you. Like the exclusive Whirlpool washer with industry-first two-in-one removable agitator. We love this washer because you can customize any load. And with other smart features to streamline your laundry routine, this product is a must-have for families. Shop the full Lowe's list of top picks at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. U.S. only. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.